there's much talk about the concept of privilege these days. People talk about white privilege. People talk about male privilege. I've heard people discussing the concept of non-disabled privilege. The concept is that if, if you are born in a certain way, if you're born perhaps just how you, however it is that you're born, male or female, how you're born with, uh, with whatever ethnicity that you have, that because of that, because of the way society is set up, some groupings or classifications of people have more societal power or influence or advantage than others who are not in that grouping. And that classification is sometimes and increasingly viewed through the lenses of ethnicity or wealth or gender or whatever lenses may be viewed that there is some advantage viewed through that. An extreme example of this might be the nation of India with their caste system. Their caste system, C-A-S-T-E. It's a hierarchical system of classes within the society where the kinds of jobs that you can get, the kind of person that you might be able to marry, the kind of education that is available to you, all these things are determined solely based on what family you are born into. And you have no say in the matter. And often it is clear just through whatever last name that you have that People can know what caste that you are in simply through your last name. The highest caste is for priests and teachers. Then there's the caste for warriors and rulers. One for farmers, traders, and merchants. One for laborers. And then the lowest class, those known as the untouchables, where the only suitable jobs for those people would be jobs such as street sweepers and bathroom janitors. This is the caste system that has been operating in the nation of India for hundreds of years. When India established their more modern constitution, they actually sought to provide a a basis for equality within their land, that try to break away from the caste system. But because their, their culture has been so steeped for hundreds of years within this caste system, Their society has not been able to break out of that so easily. And so even still, even to this day, it might be possible for a a lower person in a lower level caste to be able to rise above that and get a job that would normally be reserved for someone in a higher caste. But it's still difficult for individuals to marry outside of their caste. And those who do, even again to this day, face the potential of violence, Perhaps social boycott or familial boycott where their families will ostracize them. Or even, in some places, the potential for honor killings where you might be murdered for simply marrying outside of your caste. So, if you are a high-level caste member, you do not just give that up. Right, this is this is something you are you are born into this position, and you do not go seeking to marry someone from a lower caste. You don't do that. That is socially unacceptable. It is scandalous to surrender that position. Is both scandalous and foolish. Why would you give up that privilege? Why would you give up that position? 
Though things are much less extreme than that here in our American culture, there is still places and times when someone who is from a wealthy or upper class family, if they seek to marry someone from a poor, middle, or even lower caste family, it is still considered scandalous for that family and is not considered proper. So we have this societal privilege. This is something that that does exist to one degree or another in our different cultures. But what about religious privilege? What about religious privilege? What if you were born into the most perfect religious family that it gained you both privilege in society but also before God? The Apostle Paul would say that he was born into such a family. We today would, would scoff at the idea that someone could be born into a position of religious privilege. Like, what are you talking about? That's not the way a right relationship with God works, right? We come through Jesus Christ. But if it were to work that way, it would be true for the Apostle Paul. If you have not yet turned, so turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, where we have been working through this portion of the Word of God. Where Paul has been warning the people about individuals that would seek to Judaize the church. Those who would seek to enforce Old Testament law upon the New Testament church. And Paul says, watch out for these individuals. They have certain insults that they would bring against the Gentiles, but the reality is is those insults could actually rightly be applied to them. They think they are the circumcision, but they're not. They mutilate the flesh. They are not the true people of God, but rather we are the true people of God. And this is what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. We are the circumcision, or we are the true people of God, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The Jews, they were putting confidence in their their outward religious practices, in the fact that they were physically circumcised. Paul says, no, we are the true circumcision. Not, Not physically, but spiritually. Circumcision of the heart. And we do not put confidence in the flesh. But then he goes on. And we see him in verse 4 giving up this this statement. He's he's about to build this seven-part argument for why if anyone were to have an advantage, it would be him. If anyone had a reason to boast in their flesh, it is the Apostle Paul. Seven-part argument for why he had the spiritual advantage. And yet, he is willing to give it up. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You might think you're doing okay. You might think that you've done something. Maybe you're born into a particular family. Maybe you're keeping the law in a particular way. Sure, you've been circumcised. Well, if anybody has a reason to put confidence in the flesh... Paul says, not more than I do. I have more of a reason than anyone else to have confidence in the flesh. And he gives seven reasons why this is the case, beginning in verse 5. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then he goes on to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. One thing to keep in mind as we continue to think about the society in which Paul was writing to this Philippian church. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony. The culture of that time would have been considered an honor-shame culture. The United States, by and large, is a, is a guilt-innocence culture where, where we view things on, on the basis of objective morality and what is right, what is wrong, what is proper and fitting on the basis of, of judicial mindsets. Well, there are other cultures that don't view things quite through that lens, right? And this would have been one of those cultures, an honor-shame culture, where the highest good is to present yourself in a favorable light to those around you. And the worst thing that could happen is not to do something that is judiciously wrong, but is to bring shame upon your family. And so it is important to have a good face. It is important to present yourself in a, in a positive light to the community. And it is important if you respect someone else that you do not do anything that would bring shame upon them also. This is the culture. Okay? It's an honor-shame culture. It was true of the Jewish people. It was true of the Roman culture as well. The highest good is to preserve your own name. To preserve the reputation of your own name. And so as Paul begins to describe his heritage, he's presenting, okay, if anybody's got confidence in the flesh, if anyone has privilege, it's me. And he's speaking of privilege in a very positive way. You know, right now our culture right now speaks about privilege kind of in a negative light. Well, Paul's not speaking of it negatively. He's not speaking of something to be ashamed of. No, privilege, it's a, it's a good thing. I'm in, this is my heritage. This is my family. This is where I come from. He views it very positively. And he presents it in a way that everyone would understand. Whether the audience is, is Jewish, if, they're, if the Judaizers are listening here, they're going to understand. But even the people in the Roman colony, if they are Gentiles, they're still going to grasp what it is that Paul is communicating here when he gives what are essentially his credentials. He says, these are my credentials. If I had a resume, here it is. This is my resume. Look. This is who I am, and it's kind of broken down into two parts. The first four items that he identifies, they, they speak of his, his heritage, what he was born into, his family. And then the last three items he lists are his personal accomplishments. This is what I've done. This is what I've attained to. It's like if, if you were to put, put on your resume your, the family that you were a part of, but then also, hey, I've, this is where I got my education or such and such a thing. So we have his heritage, and we have his accomplishments. So 
So Paul is seeking to demonstrate what confidence in the flesh could look like if we were to go that route. He is he has already turned the, the common insults that the Judaizers would throw at the Gentiles. He's, he's turned those on their head earlier in the, in the chapter, showing how it is the church, again, that is the true people of God. And we don't put confidence in the flesh. But if, kind of gets into the hypothetical here, now if we were to put confidence in the flesh, Paul could do so to the nth degree. He can do so more so than anyone else. And so he shows off his credentials before the people. So let's start looking through those things. Let's look at what Paul has to say. Though, he says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Nobody is more qualified than Paul. Nobody has a better heritage than Paul. Nobody has done more according to the letter of the law than Paul. He's the top. And this is what he begins to say as he lists out his heritage. Four things that he identifies as his heritage. First, circumcised the eighth day. Circumcised the eighth day. Literally, if we were to translate it, you could say, as to circumcision, I'm an eight-dayer. That's how it could be translated literally from the Greek there. I'm an eight-dayer. I'm an eighth-dayer. What is Paul communicating there? Well, as we've discussed in in previous gatherings, the concept of circumcision is the sign of the covenant of the people of God. Those who are a part of the covenant people of God, they have this sign of circumcision. And Paul says, I bear that sign. But I'm not one of these these Johnny-come-latelys when it comes to circumcision. All right, I'm not one of these people that, that maybe I wasn't properly circumcised as a child, and later on I, I began to realize the importance of it for my Jewish heritage, and so I was circumcised later on. And you might look, look back to the Old Testament, and we see when God gave the command for circumcision to Abraham, Isaac was circumcised on the eighth day. Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13 years old. Paul says, that's not me. I'm not circumcised as, as a teenager, I'm not circumcised later in life. No, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I have a proper circumcision. I am properly, uh, I properly bear the covenant sign of the covenant people of God. That's me. From the very beginning, my life has borne the mark of being a part of the covenant community. I'm an eighth dayer, circumcised on the eighth day. He says he's of the, of the people of Israel. I was circumcised the eighth day, and, and I am of the people of Israel. And when the words that Paul used to speak of being of the people of Israel, he's, he's emphasizing and stressing the, the racial descent in the midst of that. Okay, again, this is a, he's not a convert to Judaism. He's not like a Greek or, or a Phoenician or, or some other ethnicity that, that then converted it to Judaism and now is a practicing Jew by virtue of proselytization. That is not the Apostle Paul. He says, no, my bloodline is pure. I am of the people, my ethnicity, my, my heritage, my blood bleeds Jewish. I am of the people of Israel. I am a true Israelite, racial purity within my blood. My ethnicity is pure. 
And he, there are other places where Paul acknowledges the special nature of the Israelite people. The reality is that they, the Israelites, well, they are God's chosen people, right? And, and Paul acknowledges such in Romans chapter 9. He writes, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the keeping of the law, the worship, and the promises. All right, this is Paul speaking in a New Testament context, a New Covenant context, speaking about the reality of the nation of Israel. To them belongs the glory, the covenants, the keeping of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, remember that it was through the Israelite line, through the Jewish people, through this bloodline, that God gave His Messiah to the world. God has given us His Son, and it came through the Israelite heritage. So Paul says that there is a, a special significance of being a part of the Israelite people. Truly, by blood, And that's Paul. He says, I am, by blood, I am an Israelite. I am of the people of Israel. Not only is he of the bloodline of Israel, but he says he's also of the tribe of Benjamin. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Scholars are a little bit split on on what Paul was seeking to emphasize when he spoke of being of the tribe of Benjamin. Some say that there is a special significance of that tribe in particular within Israel, that it was a very highly respected tribe. Now you look at all the tribes, you got Judah, and, and we can, there's a whole list, you know, um, Dan, and Asher, and Zebulun, and Issachar. There's all these tribes in Israel, right? And, but then there's the tribe of, of Benjamin. Benjamin, it's interesting, look, if you look historically in the Old Testament, Benjamin was the only son born to Jacob in the promised land. All the other brothers were born before they were in the promised land. It's, it's an, interesting, an interesting detail in the text. Benjamin was, it was from the tribe of Benjamin that the first king over Israel was appointed, King Saul. And when David eventually uh, assumed the throne, it was Benjamin that was first and loyal to King David. And, and so there are many reasons why that it's possible that Benjamin would have considered to, been considered to be a very well-respected tribe within the nation of Israel. So if, if Paul is identifying those realities, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm not just part of any old family that's of Jewish and Israelite bloodline. It's, it's not just any old family. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin here, all right? I'm, there, there is a special status that comes with being born of the tribe of Benjamin. But there are other scholars that say that Paul is, is, is not so much emphasizing the, the fact that he's of the tribe of Benjamin so much as he's identifying his citizenship. It was customary for people in those days when they're listing off their credentials that they would say where they were a citizen of. I'm from this region. I hail from the, this city. I'm a part of this tribe. This would have been especially true in Roman culture. And Paul was writing to a Roman audience, a Roman colony. So we have Paul 
whether he's, whether he's emphasizing the fact that he's of a, of a special tribe, that this is my family, this is where my heritage, where I come from, or if he's we're simply identifying that, hey, I have a citizenship here. This is where I hail from, and, and taking pride in the fact that he is a Benjamite, a Benjaminite, proud to be a Benjamin, right? The concept of his heritage taking place. In either case, there is something that, that there is pride that is being taken place from his origin. And then to wrap all of this up, he says that he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul's family, he was born in the city of Tarshish. That is a Gentile city. And yet, his family maintained their Jewishness, their Hebrewness through it all. To, to say he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, it, it likely would have been true that he would have been taught Hebrew and Aramaic growing up. Of course, in those days, uh, as the Jews were kind of scattered around and all over the place, they were living in various places. There's the concept of Hellenization that would have been taking place throughout the whole region. Now, that word Hellenization refers to how when the, when the Greek empire was at its zenith, when it was in power, when it was at its maximum, the Greek culture dominated the whole world that was known at that time. And that domination was known as the Hellenization of the world, where the Greek culture became dominant. And so there were many Jews that forsook their own Israelite culture, they forsook their Hebrew culture, and they began to adapt themselves to the Hellenistic culture, to the Greek culture. And so they would have been known as Hellenistic Jews. Paul says, that's not me. My family didn't forsake our culture. We have a pure bloodline. We are citizens. We are of the tribe of Benjamin. We stake our flag on that. And we never wavered in our culture. We never went over to the Hellenistic culture. We never embraced and adapted to the Greek culture, but we maintained our Hebrew culture where we were. True Hebrews. Spoke Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic. In fact, if we were looking in the book of Acts, we would see that, that he addressed the Jewish people in Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic. He was trained under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He, he went to school. He had an education, a Jewish education. Highly prized education, highly sought after. So he says, when he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he's saying that I'm not just, again, I'm not just somebody that's just kind of came to this Jewish way of life later in life. He says, no, from the very beginning, from day one, circumcised the eighth day. An Israelite by blood of the tribe of Benjamin. I stake my citizenship here. I'm proud of my tribe. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. There's no one more Hebrew than I am. From the very beginning, from day one, this is who I am. And he looks at his heritage as being weighty in his list of credentials. And that would have been impressive. It absolutely would have been impressive to his readers. You look at that and you read, wow, this guy's the real deal. But it's not just his heritage he points to. He looks at his accomplishments. He says he's a Pharisee. A Pharisee. I 
as to the law, a Pharisee. It's interesting, this is actually the only reference to Pharisees in the New Testament outside of the, book, of the Gospels and the book of Acts. Only other place it's mentioned is right here. The word Pharisee means separated one. The Pharisees viewed themselves as, as being such strict keepers of the law that they were, that they were separate. Okay, so there, was, there was God's chosen people. They were to be holy before God. They were to be separated unto God. But the Pharisees viewed themselves as, as being so strict in their observance of the law that they were even a little bit more separate, a little bit more holy still. They're separated from the culture, separated from, from that which could corrupt the culture around them. They strove to keep the law in every regard and even set up safeguards to keep themselves back from breaking the law accidentally. So if the law says, don't go this far, they, they took one step back and said, we're actually not even going to go this far because we don't want to accidentally get to there. So they viewed the law very Weightily, they, they had a high regard for the law of God. They took the law very seriously. They, they read in the Old Testament about what God did to the people of Israel if they forsook the law. And they said, no, not on our watch. We're not going to let that happen to us. And so they heaped up additional commandments upon themselves in an effort to, to safeguard themselves from going too far and breaking the law of God. So they were very strict in this way. And Paul himself, he identified himself in the book of Acts when he's speaking to to the king. He identifies himself as being of the strictest sect of the Jewish religion. No one has a higher regard for the law than the apostle Paul. No one has a higher regard for what God requires than the apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee. And he goes on to say he was zealous. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, we might think about this for a second and go, okay, why? Why is Paul listing this as a credential, right? This is supposed to be a list of his accomplishments. And he says, oh, is he persecuting the church? And he lists that as a positive thing. Why? Why would that have been considered to be impressive? Well, we have to think back to the history of the Jewish people a little bit. I'm going to turn back to the book of Numbers real quick here. And if you'd like, you can turn with me there. We're going to be there for just a, a few moments. Numbers chapter 25. Probably not a very well-worn passage in your Bible. In the middle, this is in the middle of, of the law of God. But we have this situation. We have the situation where the people of God, they are, they are traveling through the wilderness. They are making their way to the promised land. This is in the midst of their wilderness wanderings, and they're wandering out in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. And there's a situation where the people of God are beginning to intermarry with the peoples of the land, that which God specifically said do not do. Not because he's concerned about interracial marriage, but because he's concerned about the corrupting influence of, of pagan religions upon the religious people, upon, the, upon his chosen people. And, these, and not only are they beginning to intermarry, but they're beginning to engage with the, with the, the prostitutes of these pagan religions, and they're beginning to offer sacrifices to false gods. And so as a result, God is sending a plague um, on the people. And so that is where we pick things up 
in Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed themselves to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may burn, may turn away from Israel. Now that sounds pretty severe, but, but think about the purity and the, and the holiness that God requires of His people. And the, the chief leaders were leading the people into sin. And God says, no, we cannot allow this to go on. But notice what happens next. Israel said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Capital punishment for the crime of worshiping these pagan idols. And behold, verse 6, One of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So what's going on there? We have a situation where while these things are being carried out, while the people are even right before the tabernacle, they're, they're weeping about the judgment that is coming upon them because they have sinned against the Lord, because they have worshipped these false idols. They're, they're beginning to engage in, 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 in sexual activity with these foreign women, worshipping their foreign gods. And in, they're in the midst of repenting over that, and they're weeping over that, and they're weeping over the judgment and over the, the, the hangings of these men that were leading them into the sin. And while that's going on, right in the middle of that, there's a man who is leading a woman into his tent where he is bringing her into his tent. While the rest of the community is seeking to repent. This man is continuing in his sin right in front of everyone, just completely disregarding what it is that God is doing. But notice what happens next now in verse 7. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, okay, he saw this man, he's, he saw him leading this, this young lady into his tent, He rose, he left the congregation, he took a spear in his hand, he went after the man of Israel into the the chamber and, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. And thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. But then we have the Lord's comments about this situation. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel." Phineas was so jealous and so zealous for the purity of the people that when he saw 
immorality taking place right in front of him. And he saw the judgment that was coming upon his people because of that exact immorality. He said, no, I'm going to do what God requires. And he went and he executed those individuals in keeping with the law of God. And God blessed Phineas because of it. There's another story in the the book of Maccabees. This is not a biblical book, but it's considered to be a historical book of the people of Israel. There was a man named Matthias. He killed a fellow Jew when he found him offering a sacrifice on a pagan altar. And in that text, Matthias is described as, quote, burning with zeal for the law, just as Phineas did. And so these individuals, men like Phineas and men like Matthias, in the Jewish culture, as as they would look at their scriptures and they would look at their history, they would hold these individuals up as, as being legendary heroes of the faith. They were so zealous and so concerned for the purity of the people of God that when they saw people going astray from God and astray from His law, that they were willing even to kill for the sake of the purity of their people. And so when Paul says, as for zeal, persecuting the church, that's what's in the minds of the people. It's stories like Phineas, stories like Matthias, where there's the purity of the people of God at stake, and I'm willing even to persecute the church for the sake of purity among our people. So he says, this is one of my credentials. This is one of my accomplishments. This is what I was doing. Galatians chapter 1, Paul describes it in this way. He says, For you have heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among the people of God, among, of, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Zeal. He was so zealous, so concerned with purity, that he would stop at nothing to protect the integrity of the people of God. Finally, back in, back in Philippians chapter 3, the last credential that, that he gives, that he points to, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It says this was the end result of all of this. It says, I've got my heritage, I've got my accomplishments. I kept the law. I kept the law. I was a Pharisee. I knew the law better than anyone else. And I kept the law. There was nothing that you could have pointed to in my life to where I would have been out of step with what the law said. So if there's anyone who has a reason to boast in his own self-righteousness, it's Paul. He's got the heritage. He's got the credentials. He's got the accomplishments. No one has more to boast about than Paul. And yet, he goes on to say what would have been absolutely shocking to the hearers that he's writing to. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, 
I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. After he lists his credentials, that which should have built him up in the sight of the people to look and say, wow, Paul, you really are. You've really got something going for you there. You've got all the credentials. You've got all the accomplishments. You have the heritage. That's amazing, Paul. He then begins to use what is actually financial terminology as he discusses what's going on here. If you, if you would imagine like a, a ledger and the, there's a, a loss column, a, a debt column, and then a, a gain column, a profits column, Paul says that all these things that we think would be gains for me, my heritage, my, my accomplishments, my, my bloodline, my birth, all of these things, it, it looks on the face of it that that's gain to me, that that's profits. Paul says, but it's not. I look at all that and I say, that's not profit. That's loss. That's debt. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All those things are nothing. Worse than nothing. It's rubbish. It's worthless. Paul says, it's, I, I count it all loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing a Christ Jesus, my Lord. For him, for him, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's still viewing things with that, that ledger terminology, loss and gain. He says, all my things that, I, that were counted gain, I, I count those loss, so that I may gain something better, that I may gain Christ. Now, I, I have to take a moment to discuss this word rubbish. Some translations render it as dung. Some uh, say refuse. Just, And I have to address it because... I believe there are people that seek to misuse this verse in this text to justify something that I don't think is proper for the people of God. So some people look at this and say, okay, that word means dung. It means excrement. That's literally what the word is referring to. Waste, refuse, dung. Like that's, that's what we're talking about. People look at that word and say, oh, man, that's vulgar terminology. Paul, in order to, to make a rhetorical point, used what is essentially a cuss word, vulgar, vulgar terminology, in order to make his rhetorical point. And they would look at that text and they would use that as justification, say, therefore, if I'm a preacher, or whatever context I may find myself in in life, wherever I am, I actually have justification. As long as I'm trying to make a good point, I can speak vulgar language, and I can speak these, these words that are c- considered to be cuss words within our culture. And I have to say, that is not what Paul is doing here. Paul is not using a cuss word. 
In fact, if we were to see everywhere where this word, the, the Greek word is skubalon, so uh, just, that's just, just for your own sake, I guess you can take that for whatever it's worth. The word is skubalon. If we were to look up the word skubalon, where in various places where it's used, we find it's used in medical texts, it's used by philosophers, by geographers, by historians, by religious sages. It's used in places where you don't expect a cuss word to show up. It's used by people who are educated, who are distinguished, people who are writing formal textbooks about various matters. It's not used as if it's vulgar, vulgar language. So to say that to people who say that and trying to make the claim that this is vulgarity from the Apostle Paul, that he is, he's trying to make a point so much that he's even willing to cuss to make his point, they do so without historical support for how that word is used. So it's almost too bad that I even had to take the time to, to even address that. But there are preachers today who would be even orthodox preachers that would seek to use that as justification. But I don't think that's what's going on. Here's what I do think is going on. I do think that this would have been shocking to the people to hear, though. But not because it's a cuss word, but because it's dung. It's excrement. It's feces. It's poop. That is shocking enough on its own to where you don't have to think that Paul is being vulgar. Right? It's shocking enough on its own that we don't have to see Paul using these, a cuss word in the midst of this. Here's the delightful image that I'd like you to have in your mind for a second. And I say delightful very sarcastically. You go to the county fair. What kind of food we serve at the county fair? Every, whatever it is, it's going to be deep fried, right? You, you, whether it's an elephant ear, whether it's you know, uh, uh, deep fried Oreos or deep fried pickles or, or whatever it is, it's going to be deep fried. And we know what, that has, what kind of thing that that has to do onto the, uh, the impact that that typically has upon the human digestive system. It can wreak havoc there. And then you go into the porta pot and you look there and it, it, it smells terrible. We'll reach down inside that porta pot, pick you up a handful and say, all right, here's my accomplishments. Here's my credentials. It's rubbish. It's worthless. It's putrid. It's vile. Paul says, everything that's gained to me, my, my standing as a citizen, I'm of a tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I was even willing to persecute the church in my zeal. All these things that people go, wow, that's great, Paul. Paul says, no, it's dumb. It's disgusting. It's worthless in the sight of God. It does not amount to a hill of beans. It's, it's absolutely nothing before God. If I had a reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's Paul. It, that's, that's what he's saying. I have that reason. But I look at all that and say, no, it's, it's worthless. It's repugnant to me. He calls his heritage fecal matter and his accomplishments are excrement. And let me tell you, that is shocking enough on its own without it being, viewing it as a cussing moment for Paul. I'm reminded of Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says, We have all become like one who is unclean, 
and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Sometimes polluted garment is translated as filthy rags. Speaking of more shocking terminology, polluted garment, the original word there, literally refers to menstrual cloths. That is what's being referred to in that text. I can't believe he just said that. Yeah, neither can I, but it's in the text. That's what the word means. And the point is to be a shock to us. All my righteousness, everything good that I think that I could bring before God and say, here you go, God, this is my gift to you. It's it's, It's dung. It's polluted garments. It's worthless. It's, it's, worse than, it's worse than worthless. It's, it's something that we don't even want to be associated with this. We want to get it far away from ourselves as possible. We don't want these things on ourselves. This makes us unclean. That's our righteousness. That's everything that we think that we can do in the flesh, everything that we can try to bring before God. It's worthless. Worthless. Here's the the point that Paul is seeking to stress. Until we recognize that we have nothing to offer, we will also have nothing to gain. Until we recognize that we have nothing to offer, we will also have nothing to gain. As long as we're trying to cling to whatever our human accomplishments are, as long as we're trying to, to cling to our works and our, and our heritage and our activities, whatever it is that we're trying to do, and cling to those as being merit before God, as long as we're trying to do that, we will not gain Christ. Now, we have to be willing to suffer the loss of all those things, and then we gain Christ. Because we don't put confidence in the flesh. That's fecal matter. And we put confidence in Christ, in Him alone. So that is what I want to challenge you with this morning. I want to ask you this question. Where is your confidence? Paul says, if anyone had a reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's me. But I don't. Because I look at those accomplishments, I look at my flesh and see that it is but dung. Maybe your confidence is not in circumcision, but perhaps it's being born into a Christian home. And you think that that is what is earning you something before God. Maybe it's not because you're a Benjaminite. You're not of the tribe of Benjamin. Maybe you think it's because you're an American. I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. We have songs about that. I'm not trying to say anything against being patriotic. But if we think that being an American means anything to God, you're wrong. It's dumb. Maybe your confidence isn't in keeping the Old Testament law, but maybe it's in your baptism. Maybe you think, oh, well, I've been baptized, so, hey, I'm good. Maybe you think it's in these communion elements. Hey, I, I take communion regularly. I, I'm, I'm feasting upon the blood and the body of Christ. If your confidence is in physical elements, it's misplaced 
confidence. It's confidence in the flesh. Maybe your confidence is in church attendance. Hey, I show up. Maybe I, I put something in the offering box. I'm, I, I do my tithes and my offerings. Confidence in the flesh. Paul says he was willing to suffer the loss of all things, and, and he did. There's very high likelihood that Paul would have been ostracized from his family when he converted to Christianity. I mean, the dude is in prison when he's writing right here, okay? All that heritage, all those credentials, he's being a Pharisee, all those things. It's really not helping him out right now because he's in jail. He suffered the loss of all things. But he did so gladly because he gained Christ. I wonder, presented with two options, would you rather be born in a third world country where you're growing up just completely impoverished, malnourished, HIV positive, but you die in Christ versus growing up in America where we are all, even the poorest among us is immensely wealthy. You've got a cell phone, you're in the top 1% of the world. You drive a car, you're in the top 1% of the world. Immensely wealthy. We can live lives of luxury and comfort and air conditioning. And yet if we die in our sins... Let me tell you, dying HIV positive is better than dying without Christ, as long as we have Christ. Are we willing to suffer the loss of all things? When Paul came to faith, it cost him everything. And being a Christian right now, I don't, in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't cost us a whole lot here. It might cost us some relationships here and there. It might cost us some difficult interactions with some people. It doesn't cost us like what it cost the Apostle Paul, at least not yet. Now, that, that day might be coming. And we might have to think very hard and, and carefully about these things. Am I willing to suffer the loss of all things? Am I willing to give up my job? Because there are people that it's, that's happening to. Am I willing to give up my fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, my comfort, my family? Am I willing to give those things up? I have Christ. We may have to face those decisions before, sooner rather than later. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm not predicting anything. But it's just something that we have to think through. Paul says that the true people of God are those who do not place confidence in the flesh. It's not of my heritage, it's not of my accomplishments. I'm working on an MDiv degree. Yippee, I'm going to have letters after my name. Who cares? If my confidence is in an MDiv degree, misplaced confidence. My confidence is in my last name or something of that nature. It doesn't matter. Fooey on all that. It's It's rubbish. Gain Christ. True people of God are those who place no confidence in the flesh. Where is your confidence today? I'm just going to close in a word of prayer, and, and I'm just going to leave us with a, with a couple of moments to just have some silent reflection amongst ourselves. Just go to the Lord and, and examine, Lord, is there, 
Is there a place in my life where I am placing confidence where it ought not to be? Lord, I've placed confidence in the fact that I was baptized. I'm, I'm placing confidence in the fact that I'm not as bad as the next guy next to me. And I don't want that to be where I place my confidence. If, that, if there's just something that needs to be addressed, I'm, we're just going to have a, a moment of reflection right now where you can go to the Lord and, and address that and, and seek to affirm yet again that our confidence, your confidence, needs to be in Christ and Christ alone, the finished work of Christ on the cross. So let's bow in prayer. And think carefully. Think honestly. Be honest with yourself. Where is your confidence? Lord, I do ask your forgiveness. Lord, I know I am so prone to self-righteousness in my own heart and life to where I can so often misplace my confidence in the flesh and that which is useless, worthless, putrid, vile, repulsive. I thank you for Jesus Christ, whose grace is greater than all my sin, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. I pray that you would help me to keep my confidence in Christ and Christ alone. Lord, I pray for everyone here and anyone who may be viewing this online or hearing this later on that if the confidence is in anything but the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we, would, that we would repent of that, turn away from that. And that our confidence would be in Christ and what He did. Christ died on the cross. He did it all. It is finished. We don't have to do anything more but believe and receive. Lord, we're about to close with this song, All I Have is Christ. I pray that our heart can truly Sing this song with honesty and truth. That all I have is Christ and Jesus is my life. That we would place no confidence in the flesh. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.